0: individual kid. But in the meantime, uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to try to cover the rest of the chapter today, beginning in verse 3, reading through verse 14. Um, have, have any of you had a chance yet to see the sign out in the foyer about the sermon series? No one, apparently. Please go out there and look at the sign. Okay, I spent a lot of time on this, and I'm very excited about this sign. I have never made a sign before in my life. And it's almost as tall as me. And I put it out there so you could see it. And apparently, no, not very many people saw it. So please look to your left when you come in from that door. Look to your left. And in very big print, it gives you the theme for this sermon series. And it's simply this. Jesus is greater. If I can sear that into your brains, that is what I want you to get from this entire sermon series. Jesus is greater. Greater. And I'll explain what that means every week from now on, but we'll see it today in this sermon as well, that Jesus, in this particular series, sermons here, sermon, uh, the, the message is Jesus is, is greater than all the angels. So let's turn uh, verse 3, chapter 1 of Hebrews. Hear the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your help. Uh, Your holy word has just been read to us. Help us not to take it lightly. It has just addressed some very high themes about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us not to think little of it. Help us to see that whatever it is that we're facing right now in our lives, although this particular sermon may not address explicitly What it is that we're dealing with, I think overall, oh Lord, it does answer uh, the, the deep questions of our heart. Who do we turn to? Who do we look to? Jesus alone. Help us to rest in that truth. Help us to trust in Christ today, we pray in His name. Amen. At the beginning of the Nicene Creed, it's one of the famous ancient creeds written way back in the year 325 A.D., Um, we we say it as a church uh, from time to time here as well. It's in the back of our hymn books, the Trinity hymn book. The first phrasing of it, we say this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Now we don't often think of those types of things, but what we're saying by that profession is that we believe that there are things that we can't see. Not only God, who is uh, the person that we cannot see, but there are things that He has made, creatures that He has made, that we normally do not see. And that they're working every day in our midst, and in fact, we'll find out later on, even in, in this own book in Hebrews, later on chapter 10, those creatures are right now even in our midst, is what He says. You can't see them, but they're here right now. Now, of course, we're not referring to anything remotely related to anything you've ever seen on TV. For all of those poor souls who actually liked Highway to Heaven, or Touched by an Angel, or any of those other sappy Hallmark movies that don't represent anything truthful about angels whatsoever or any other TV show or movie that has ever been put on by Hollywood, ever about angels, that is entirely incorrect and wrong and misleading. I'd like to introduce you to who the angels really are. The Scripture has a totally different view than our sad world does of these creatures that God has made, but they've been misrepresented, not just in our society, but for centuries. C.S. Lewis, have you ever read his book, um, The Screwtape Letters?, at the very beginning, he he bemoans the fact that even in religious art over the centuries, how they have misrepresented angels again and again and again. Uh, for instance, uh, most of you are probably familiar with Raphael's paintings of those little fat, naked cherub boys, you know what I'm talking about, who always seem to be naive and have no idea what's going on, and they're looking to see what's what's happening. Um it gets worse in the 19th century. We see these paintings of all these very slender, feminine, girly angels. And C.S. Lewis says, instead of, uh, in Scripture, when a man or a woman sees an angel, immediately the first thing out of the angel's mouth is, do not be afraid. Right? Because they're standing before this very intimidating creature. C.S. Lewis says the way they present these feminine, girly angels, instead, it's like... They're there now. You're okay. Totally different image altogether. If you look at what the Scripture actually presents about angels, the first time we see something like an angel is in Genesis chapter 3. Remember? After Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, he places his cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. And they're standing there as intimidating figures with a flaming sword to say, do not come anywhere near Certainly not little, fat, naked boys. Later on when we get to the book of Ezekiel, the cherubim are depicted as these otherworldly, they look like aliens, with four wings and four faces. It says it looks like the face of a lion and an ox and a human and an eagle all at the same time. And then when we see the construction of the cherubim images in Solomon's temple, he doesn't picture them as a two-foot little cherub boy. He has them sized to be 15 feet tall. And their wingspan is also 15 feet to where literally their wings, the two of them standing, are, are, are covering the entire span of the temple and their height is as tall as the ceiling. He's not picturing something that is a creature that you would laugh at, but rather one that you would be really scared of. And you would be afraid that you were going to die because you saw one. Literally, that's the impression that everyone gets when they see these types of creatures. And and for us to understand the argument of the author of Hebrews, we have to understand this this is what he's talking about here. It's not the view that we see on TV but rather the image of what the Jews would see in the Old Testament. Because he's trying to compare the relationship of the angels to their relationship with Jesus. And it's, it's a stark contrast that he's trying to paint here. The Jews held a very high regard for angels. They were fearful of them, but also in awe of them because they were these grand, powerful, mysterious figures that all of a sudden would appear out of nowhere. But in addition to that, The problem is they see Jesus as a man. There's a a quote by Shakespeare in in, uh, Hamlet. the, The character Hamlet says this. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a God, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals... And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? I'd say the Jews had a a very similar image of men, and particularly of Jesus. They see these angels as these celestial, powerful, magnificent beings, and then they see man as just of dust. And so you can see how that would be a problem for their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Jesus comes to earth not as an angel, but... As a man, right? And so they, the the background to this, if you remember a couple weeks ago when we first started this sermon series, the problem is there have been Jews who have come and professed faith in Christ, but now they're experiencing persecution either in Rome or just outside of Rome, somewhere in Italy. And they're tempted to turn back toward Judaism in order to avoid that persecution. And they're beginning to think, well, you know what? we're not really missing out on too much because we had such a glorious revelation that was received by angels in the Old Testament. And instead, we're told to look to this message in the New Testament that's revealed by this man named Jesus, you see. And so they're beginning to compare these two things. And it's interesting because they really do believe that the Old Testament law was revealed by angels Did you know that the Scripture actually teaches that? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Look forward just a little bit in your Bibles there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. The writer admits, he says, the law of God that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai was declared by angels. You heard that before? Well, he's not the only one who says it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, the law of God was put in place through angels. Also, you remember the deacon Stephen, before he stoned to death, he's he's presenting this testimony of what's happened in the history of Israel, and and as he's explaining this to them, he says that their forebears received the law as declared by angels. And you're like, I don't remember reading that. (laughs) The book of Exodus doesn't seem like it mentions that at all. Strangely enough, Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 does. Moses is recounting what took place on Mount Sinai, and here's what he says. When the Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned upon them, He came down with ten thousands of His holy ones with flaming fire at His right hand. And what we're not told explicitly there is that somehow the angels are the mediator conveying this revelation to Moses from God. Now, what's important to understand here is that these angels were instrumental in revealing the law of God to the Jews. And so they're seeing this and they're beginning to wonder... You know, should I really continue to trust in Christ when I have such a great revelation from angels in the Old Testament? Now, here's the author's main point. This is what I want you to see this morning. Uh, the author's main point in this passage and, and, and all the rest of them as well is that Jesus is greater. He's better than the angels. He's superior to the angels. He's he's preeminent. He is the greatest person in all the universe. And for them to turn away from Jesus, not only are they abandoning the new revelation that is found in Him, they're abandoning their salvation. Because salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. It was never found upon the law of God in the Old Testament. The law of God does not save. The law of God was never meant to save. The law of God was meant to condemn you to point you to a Savior who is Jesus Christ. And if you miss that, you miss the entire point of the Bible. And that's his concern for some of these Jewish Christians who seem to be wanting to go backwards rather than forwards. Because even the revelation of angels that is given in the Old Testament was entirely to point you to Christ. To miss that, you miss... The gospel, so to prove his point, the author of Hebrews is quoting from seven Old Testament passages in this particular chapter, and you're going to have to bear with me because we're going to try and explain each one of the seven, um, but it's very important uh, to understand his argument and why he's going in this direction. Um, what's very interesting though is that six of the seven passages that he quotes to prove that Jesus is greater doesn't come from the law. Nor does it come from the prophets, but rather comes from the Psalms. You'd be surprised how much prophecy is actually unveiled to us in the Psalms. How much the Psalms talk about the Christ to us to come. In fact, uh, trivia question for today: You ready? What is the passage that is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other? Psalm one ten. You write that one down, because you're going to need to understand that one. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is sort of an elaborate extension of teaching on Psalm 110. Over and over again, he's going to point to it, and so do the other gospel writers. Psalm 110, because it's a very, very clear revelation of Christ. And we'll get to that in a minute. But in the meantime, here's what you need to see. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, reveals himself to the disciples... He explains who he is to them by going back to the law and the prophets. And he says, and also the Psalms, he told them, all of this pointed to me, and now it is fulfilled in me. So it's very important we understand what he's saying as well as what the author of Hebrews is saying. So if you're the type of person who likes to take notes, which is pretty much all of you, here are the main points for the sermon this morning. Four ways that Jesus is better than the angels. Number one, his name is greater than the angels. Number two, he is worshiped by the angels. Number three, he created the angels. And number four, he continually rules over the angels. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, why does this matter to me? We'll get to that toward the end, I promise. Number one, Jesus' name is greater than the angels. After sharing with the readers in the first couple of verses that the Lord had finally spoken through His Son, in the past He spoke in a lot of different ways to the prophets and even through angels, but in His last days He's spoken through His Son directly. And after he had spoken through Christ and Christ laid down his life as a sacrifice for sins, it then said he ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And now, in verse 4, he says, So that Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And what is this great name that he's inherited? Here it is the Son. He is the Son of God. None of the angels ever received that title. He begins in verse 5 by quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Again, if you want to write these down, you can look at them later. There he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is clearly the Lord talking to a human king sitting on the throne of David, and yet it's more than a human king because he's saying that this king is going to rule over all the nations forever. So he's, he's, it's clearly a messianic psalm, Psalm 2. And so he's explaining that, that he never said this to an angel, but rather he said it to a king, a human king, who happens to be the Messiah. Uh, we only know the, the names of two angels in all the scripture. Can you name them? There you go, Michael and Gabriel. Do you ever hear God say to Michael or Gabriel, you are my son, I want you to sit on my throne? Never. He says this to his son. Again, he quotes the second verse, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. That's the, the passage where God makes his covenant with David, and he says to him, I will be to him a father, referring to David's son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then he says, and, and, and he will sit upon my throne forever. Now you think, well, at first this is certainly referring to Solomon. But does Solomon ever sit on God's throne forever? (laughs) No. He dies. He's not sitting on God's throne. He's referring to some son of Solomon, son of David, on and on and on, until we finally get to the Messiah. And as you know, there are a number of occasions in which Jesus is called God's son, right? Even before he's born, you remember... Uh, when the angel appears to the shepherds as they're watching their flocks by night, you know the Christmas story very well. And after he announces that Mary's son would be called the Son of the Most High, all of a sudden the angels appear, right? Um, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. He, he tells Gabriel's telling Mary herself that her son would be called the Son of the Most High. Then when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, remember you hear the voice from heaven this is my son, with him I am well pleased. Same thing, Mount of Transfiguration. Again, same, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. Three times we see a voice from heaven is saying that Jesus is God's son. Now there's a sense in which Jesus has always been called God's son because he is always God's son, but nevertheless, there was a time in which that status was confirmed. And that's what he's saying in verse 3, that through the resurrection of Christ, he is now declared with power To be the Son of God. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 to verse 4 that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, proving that he's not just an ordinary king, an ordinary man, but a divine king who lives forever. In Roman society, it's actually a a, a tradition that when a son became of age, it was at that time when he became a man, that's when the father would pronounce upon him his own name that he would become his son officially in that sense. That's the language that Paul is using. That's the language that the writer of Hebrews is using here to say that when Jesus suffered, died on the cross, and rose from the grave, that was the moment that God said, this is my son with power. He's declared to be the son of God. Never, ever do you ever see God saying that to any of the angels because Jesus is the very radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. That's what the Hebrews author is telling us. So the implication is clear. How could you turn away from the name of Jesus and turn back to angels when Jesus is the only name under heaven that is given unto men by which we must be saved? How could you not look to the name of Jesus and turn backwards to angels? It doesn't make any sense. That's his first point. Jesus has inherited a better name. Second, Jesus is also worshiped by the angels. Verse 6, the author says, and again, when he, that's God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is a quote probably from two places. The first one is in Psalm 97, verse 7, and a comparative one in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, both of which command the angels to worship and bow down to the Lord. Now, it's important I want to point out two things here. In the original text, in the Old Testament, when these creatures are told to bow down, they're told to bow down to Jehovah. Now, this is a very important point, and uh, for all those of you who have ever had a a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, extremely important. Uh, Hebrews pretty much blows all of their arguments out of the water because he's constantly quoting from the Old Testament, saying things that refer to Jehovah and saying it's about Jesus. In other words, he's saying Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is not an angel, as the Jehovah's Witnesses want you to believe. Jesus is God. And so both of these quotes, both in Deuteronomy as well as in Psalms, they're not saying bow down to Jesus. They're saying bow down to Yahweh. But he's saying it applies to Jesus. Bow down to Jesus because he is Yahweh. In addition... If you look at those two texts, and, and I, I, like I said, I, I tell you them so you can look them up and see, because you'll see, in, at least in the ESV, and many of the other translations, it won't say that the angels bow down to Jehovah, but rather, the command is that the gods would bow down to Jehovah. So why is it that, we, why is it that the Hebrews writer is saying that they're angels? Well, for, for, for this reason, uh, first of all, are there gods other than Jehovah? Is there another god other than God? No, there's no other gods. Uh, But sometimes the angels were referred to be as gods because of their otherworldly status in the eyes of men. But even in the Old Testament, you'll notice that all of the pagan idolatry that is practiced, when they bow down to idols, they're not just bowing down to a a, a piece of wood or, or gold or any other type of object. They're actually bowing down to the god behind that statue. And who is the god behind the statue? It's a demonic angel. So what, when when the author of Hebrews is, is, is quoting these passages, he's saying all the gods, they're commanding them all to bow down to Jehovah. He's saying all the angels, both the good as well as the bad angels, are commanded to bow down before the Lord, just as every knee shall bow, every knee of every angel shall bow. That's the command of God. And so he's saying every one of them is commanded to do that, and we see that even more clearly in the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, that was the passage I started to get a little ahead of myself. When the angel reveals to the shepherds who are watching their flocks by night that Jesus is going to be born in, in Bethlehem, immediately that whole host of angels appears behind him. And what do they begin to sing? Gloria and excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. They're worshiping the Son who is to be born. Christ. Now again, a Jehovah's Witness would try to tell you. Well, they're worshiping God, they're not worshiping Jesus. But let me show you a few proof texts in the New Testament that helps you see this more clearly. Isaiah chapter 6 is in the Old Testament. I know that. Someone was going to say that. I won't tell you who. Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on His throne, and the, 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 the train of His robes filling the temple. You remember what's flying around Him, right? The the, the cherubim are flying, or, uh, seraphim are, are flying around Him. And they're continually saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now most of us, when we think of that passage, even when we sing holy, 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 we think of sort of that this is a theophany of God the Father, but it's not. Because the Apostle John tells us in his Gospel, John chapter 12, verse 41, that what Isaiah sees is not the Father. Rather, he says that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and was speaking about Him. It was Christ who was high and lifted up on His throne. It was Christ whose robe was filling the temple. And it was Christ that the seraphim were covering their faces and singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels were worshiping Christ on his throne, is what John is saying. Now, of course, John knows what he's talking about. Revelation chapter 5, he sees almost the same vision, a very similar one, but but with fuller revelation. Revelation chapter 5, he sees a vision of the ascended Christ sitting on His throne, surrounding by these same living creatures, but then also by myriads and myriads of angels. A myriad is about 10,000, and uh, the way it at least puts in the King James, it's myriads times myriads, so it's 10,000 times 10,000. 100 million angels, all singing with this loud, thunderous voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. When do you ever see anyone singing that about an angel? Never. They're singing about Jesus. Because He is superior. In fact, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, we actually see a very interesting example. The Apostle John, after one of the angels reveals to him about what's about to happen. He's so in awe of this celestial creature that he immediately falls down and wants to worship the angel. But the angel says to him, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. An angel will not receive worship from men. Jesus demands worship from men and the angels as well. So again, the point of the exhortation is to say this. Do not turn away from Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, and turn back to the old message of the angels, for even the message of the angels was to point you to Christ. In fact, uh, Peter says in his epistle that the angels were longing to look further into the revelation of Christ to see when these things would be. They're they're looking uh, with great concern about this. So then how possibly, if the angels are looking forward to Christ, how then could these professing Christians look back to angels if the angels themselves are looking forward to Jesus? It just doesn't make sense. He's saying that's ridiculous. Then third, in addition to Jesus inheriting a better name than the angels, in addition to Jesus getting the worship of the angels, He also tells us that Jesus created the angels. Uh, uh, Verse 7. He quotes this time from Psalm 104, verse 4, saying, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Got that? One of the commentators tries to explain it this way. He says, the angels are sent out by God to execute his commands with the swiftness of the wind and the strength of fire. Now there's there's truth in that and here's why. Um, the, The seraphim Literally, the, the word, when translated in English, means burning ones. Whereas cherubim, one of the translations that is given, and I think it's an accurate one, is swift ones. Swift like the wind. So in other words, each one of those are describing an action uh, of, 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 of how they're being manifested before the eyes of men. I'll give you, give you an example. You remember when Elisha uh, is surrounded by the enemy and all of a sudden... He sees, what does he see? The horses and chariots of what? Fire. What's he seeing? He's seeing seraphim. In a similar way, when David is speaking of God's quick deliverance when he's being surrounded by his enemies, in Psalm 18, verse 10, he's speaking figuratively, but he says this that the Lord helped him out of his trouble, saying, The Lord rode on a cherub and flew to me. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. What's he saying? he's saying the cherub is this swift one who's quickly coming to my aid, right? So the one is, is is showing how quickly they can come to the help of someone, and the other one is showing the great power that they have to help someone in their need. Um, it's interesting uh, Saint Augustine, uh, early church father, makes a point of saying this about angels you realize that the, the term angel literally means messenger. Now, that doesn't tell us who they are. It rather tells us what their vocation is. It's sort of like saying the Apostle Paul is a human, but his calling is as an apostle, right? Well, it's interesting. The Scripture actually never tells us what an angel is. It just tells us what he does. In fact, the cherub and the seraphim is just showing how they're manifested. We're seeing something of the fire and something of the wind, and, we're, and they're giving messages, but we still don't know who they are. Nowhere does it define for us, this is what an angel is. Does that make sense? Which is why they're so otherworldly and mysterious to us, and the television channels are just making all sorts of ridiculous claims about them because they don't know. We don't know. God has not given us the information to tell us who they are. We just know that God has made them, and they're made to serve Him in that sense, right? But if you skipped ahead to, to verses 10 through 12, Here's where the comparison comes in. uh, He's quoting this time from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Speaking of Jesus, he says, again, this is originally applied to Jehovah, but now to Jesus. He says, how he laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, how the heavens are the works of his hands, and how all these things will wear out like a garment, like a robe, he'll roll them up, they'll be changed, yet he remains the same, and his years will have no end. So how does this compare to the angels? Well, basically... He's describing the angels as wind and fire. In other words, He's describing them in terms of earth, things created. Whereas Jesus is not given in terms of created, but rather of creator. He is the One who has made all things. He is the One who has made the angels. He's saying by definition, the angels and everything in this world, everything that's been created, is finite, changeable, and terminable. Whereas Christ is eternal and unchangeable. Making a huge difference theologically here between the the created angels and the Creator Jesus. In fact, if you look back at verse 3 in this chapter, chapter 1, there the writer of Hebrews says that the Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. You ever thought about what that means? He upholds the universe? Well, if you think about it, the the angels are creation of the universe if Christ does not uphold their very being they do not exist for the angels to continue to live it's only because Christ's power to sustain their life in the same way it is for us the minute Christ decides it's time to end our life we're done right Again, showing the great power, as, as mysterious and otherworldly as these angels are, and, and magnificent, and in and, and height, and stature, all these other things, they're still just created beings whom God can t- take away their life in a moment. But Jesus is eternal and unchangeable. And I think this really helps in, in the terms of what these uh, Jewish Christians are considering at the moment, because... They're looking to angels. We read from Psalm 91 when we first began the worship service, if you remember. In Psalm 91, it says, The angels will not let your, your foot fall to the ground, right? But who is the one who's created the angels? If you're looking for someone to keep you safe, don't look to the created being. Look to the Creator who has made those beings. He is the one who not only has created you, but He is the one who is your sustainer. He is the one who upholds your life. Trust in Him. Don't trust in angels. Then fourth and finally, in addition to having a better name than the angels and being worshipped by the angels and, and being the very creator and sustainer of the angels, the writer of Hebrews also points out that Jesus is the ruler over the angels. This time, verse 13, he finally quotes that most quoted passage, Psalm 110, verse 1, which reads, "...and to which of the angels has he, is God," Has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, again, for those of you who know the history, of Joshua, whenever Joshua would conquer uh, uh, the enemies of Israel, he would literally make the elders of the of the of the Israelites put their foot on top of the neck of the kings who were conquered to show that they are the footstool of Israel. In the same way, saying that this passage in reference to The Messiah is that all enemies, all over all the nations of all the world, they will be the footstool of the Messiah. Likewise, verses 8 through 10, uh, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. This time uh, he says, The Lord is promising to his son, the Messiah, that he would sit on his throne forever, ruling over all, again, all the nations of the world. One other verse, last one I'm going to quote to you, uh, verse 3, we read earlier. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels. So again, all three of these quotes are all references to Christ sitting on his throne and reigning and ruling over all, right? Now, it's obvious that God never made any such promise to the angels to sit on his throne. I mean, think about it. Why would God ever tell an angel, hey, come sit on my throne? Uh, He would never do that. In fact, the very fact that he does that for Jesus tells you Jesus has to be God because God's not going to share his throne with a man. He's not going to share his throne with an angel. Jesus is Jehovah. In fact, every single time you see the the angels in the presence of God, they're never sitting, they're always standing or flying or lying prostrate on the ground. In fact, verse 14 this is the comparison. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So again, the, the difference is between the servant and the master. The difference is between the ruled and the ruler. Christ is the one who reigns over the angels. In fact, Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 makes that very emphatically clear. The angels are not just God's angels. They are Christ's angels. He rules over them. He reigns over them. And thus while he's sitting on his throne, he's sending them out as his servants to carry out his perfect will. In the 19th century, John Patton was a, a missionary to the cannibals. Uh, some of you probably have read about his story. Uh, he was a missionary to the new Hebrides Islands of the South Seas, uh, which is now the area of Vanuatu. Are you familiar with that? You ever, anybody ever been to Vanuatu? Uh, it's predominantly Christian today because of John Patton. The vast majority of people living in Vanuatu are Christians today because of this man who went out in the name of Christ to tell them cannibals who wanted to eat him about Christ. Anyway, one night, the natives grew especially hostile toward him and were getting hungry. They literally came and surrounded his mission station intent on killing him and his wife and then to eat them. To show their power over them and over the Christian God. But they began to pray that God would deliver them from this savagery. Throughout the night, they kept hearing the shrieking of the natives and just their desire. But yet, they never attacked. Daylight finally came they were gone. They had left the area entirely and they have no idea why. They just left. Well, about a year later, in the Lord's mercy, the chief of the tribe came to faith in Jesus Christ. And John <laughs> gained the courage to say, "Um, you remember that night where you wanted to eat me? Why didn't you? <laughs> why didn't you? Why did you stop?" Why didn't you kill us? The chief, in surprise, said, uh, Because of all those men who were with you that night. Of course, uh, John said there were no men with us that night, Uh, but the chief said that he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling their mission station. Did they see angels? As I mentioned before, Elisha could see the horses and chariots of fire surrounding him, but his servant could not. Remember, he had to pray that his servant opened his eyes so he could see that there's more with us than with them, right? In the same way, the Lord had opened King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes to see, in addition to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, all of a sudden, there's another mysterious figure standing in the fire. The Lord enabled him to see it. Most of the time, these are invisible creatures. But on occasion, for one reason or another, it seems that they have been revealed. And the writer of Scripture recognizes this. and He says continually that they're there to serve us, to serve those who are to inherit salvation. They're the ones who will not let our foot fall to the ground. But, But it's so interesting though because You have to admit they're very fascinating creatures. Don't you want to know more about them? Well, I'm happy to share that I don't know anything else. (laughs) There's not a single thing else I can tell you about them. I've pretty much shared most of my knowledge about them just now. But the scripture makes a point of not telling you anything else about them. How could God not tell us about them? They're awesome creatures. You want another reason? Because the Bible is not about angels. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. And simply, if you're going to have a whole book written about what's the most important person on the planet, it's not going to be about the angels. You have all of heaven to ask questions. Tell me a little bit, who is this figure over here? The Bible is about Christ. The whole book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament, Jesus says, was written about me why because salvation is found in no one else but in jesus christ now how does that help you (laughs) well the same problem that the the jewish christians had back then is the same problem we often forget that jesus is our creator jesus is our sustainer jesus is our Savior and our Redeemer, our Lord, our Master, our Friend, our Protector, our Refuge, our Rock, our Strong Tower. I could just go on and on and on. Who He is in reference to us. So the exhortation that the writer of Hebrews is giving is the same one that I give pretty much every week. Look to Christ. Don't look to angels. Don't look to anything else. The whole Bible, it's about Christ. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. On that final day, when Christ returns, no one will be hailing the name of the angels. No one. They'll all be hailing the name of Jesus. And even the angels will prostrate, fall. As we all sing together, holy, 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 crown Him. Lord of all. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to help us to understand these things. Help us to see our lives as created beings, as those who have been created for a purpose to know you, to love you, to serve you, and nothing else. Help us to see our place in the same way as the angels. We are fellow co-workers, fellow servants of the Lord, but help us to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our life, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only name under heaven, whereby we must be saved, the only name under heaven by where we can grow, the only name under heaven by which we learn to love, the only name under heaven by which we have a hope and a future and inheritance that's kept for us, Through the power of Christ, Lord, help us to trust in Him. And to know Him, we pray, in Jesus' name.